If you have your Bibles, which I hope that you do, you can open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So uh, I'm just excited to uh, be able to preach. It's been a couple weeks. Uh, as you know, a group of guys went to uh, Honduras. We have another group going to Haiti. We'll pray at the end of the service for them. And uh, So it was an interesting experience. We know they have all kinds of stories and things to tell. And um, I'm writing some of the lessons I've learned on my blog because there's just too much to say in one place. So um, um, in the back uh, is, like on the windowsill back there, there's some small magnets, and um, these are magnets from um, Dwellings, which is the name of the organization that we partner with or went with. And uh, they're magnets that come from a a guy who became a Christian uh, fairly recently, like within the last year. He uh, has a shop over there called the Rusty Fish. He's probably one of the few white guys over there. And he takes recycled garbage and makes them into uh, various uh, trinkets and things like that. And so there are magnets back there. I think they have a website uh, of some kind. And so um, that, he helps support the ministry through some of the things he does. So if you, uh, if you support it or prayerfully, I just want a really cool magnet, then uh, by all means, please get that. And you remember to pray for dwellings. Um, it was an awesome experience. And so when I came back last week, uh, I just kind of sat in here, which is difficult for me to do, um, and so you'll probably see me fidgety if you ever uh, see me there, but I came in and it was an interesting experience because having been back uh, you know, down in Honduras, I came and um, just kind of experienced it like someone else would, and, and it was strange for me in that we spent uh, time over there with, with several different people. One guy was named Hank, and Hank, I hope, has the opportunity to preach here in the next couple months, but he's like a six foot five black guy, about 44, and he's just a fireball of energy. Um, he is uh, the kind of guy that he knows nothing other than how to preach. So when he has a conversation with you, he's preaching. So he's in the car preaching, and you're outside. He's, he'll tell you what he had for breakfast, and it'll sound like a sermon. It's awesome. It is inspiring. It's encouraging. It's just like, yeah, let's just go and save people. So... He is just awesome, but the thing that he has dual citizenship, and so he brought his kids back, I think for a five or seven year stint in California to get them an education, and then went back, and, um, and he said his experience in America was interesting, uh, he comes back every now and then, but here was his characterization of Americans, he said, they all just look so sad, this sad, and he, and he like, I don't get it. Even the Christians, maybe especially the Christians. And quite frankly, when I sat in here last week, it was so quiet. I was like, oh my God. I mean, I was just like fired up, sitting there going, I just want to go talk about everything that happened. And, you know, I had to restrain myself. But I sat back going, man, where's the joy? Where's the, where's the amens? You know, you probably heard me screaming a bunch of them because I was just fired up. And it was interesting as we were praying with Hank on a, on a piece of property that he wants to build a farm for his community. Uh, he was talking, and again, preaching as he talks, and just telling us what's going on. And so there's a circle of men. So you got like 11 guys, and then Hank and uh, Luis was his kind of assistant pastor. And he's just talking and telling us all this stuff. And, and Tom had to almost apologize. Tom's the lead guy. And he's like, yeah, sorry, uh, Hank's not used to being around a bunch of white guys who never say anything. Because we're all sitting there, and we should be going, amen, praise God, right? I mean, if I said like three words, he'd be like, preach it, brother. I mean, that's what he would say. I was like, that's so awesome. So all that to say, feel free to encourage the pastor. 
feel free to, to howl out an amen every now and then. It's okay. No one's like, you just quiet down a little bit. I'm trying to. No, don't worry about that. Okay? We've got to be, the joy of the Lord is my strength, and we're here, and we have everything in Christ, and we should be the most joyful people. The worst thing to do is to come in and be like, wow, this place is a downer, right? Let's get some joy. Yeah. There you go. Mike knows what I'm talking about because he heard him, right? So I expect some amens from you, Mike. All right. First Corinthians chapter 6, I'm going to pray, ask God to, uh, to move me out of the way. I have the joy of preaching on Christian lawsuits. Yeah, I know that's woohoo, but be surprised uh, what God has to say. So let's pray. Father God, I just thank you for who you are. And I thank you for the joy that is salvation, that there is more than what this world says there is. That, Father, our lives are a speed bump to eternity. And we have the privilege to work with you and to be with you in eternity and to rejoice. And so right now, Father, I ask that you will delight in all that we do here. That you remind us why we're actually here. It's not for us. It's not to be entertained. It is to serve you and to worship you and to delight in everything that we already have. Fill us, Father, with joy. Fill our worship with joy. Fill our preaching with joy. Fill our service with joy. Until we get to see you again. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Look at that. Woo! A whole new church. Alright. Well, we've been talking a lot about the world. And Chris defined the world for us a little bit. And so the way I think about the world, so I'll use the world a lot, is the world is that part of creation that's still in rebellion against its creator. Okay, it's the best way to, to think about it. And so the world, that being culture and people, and the world pretends to love Jesus, the humble servant. They love Jesus, the good teacher. They love even Jesus, the dying Savior. But the world hates Jesus, the resurrected judge. Hates Jesus, the resurrected judge. And as promised, Jesus said, this is what would happen. They hate me, they're going to hate you. The world hates those whom Jesus loved. The church, the saints, those who Jesus died for. Okay? Now, the world, because of that disdain, if you will, for the church, watches the church like hawks. And they're watching the church looking for something to mock. They are looking for some weakness, something that will prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that they are not who they say they are. And let's be honest, there's a lot to see. Sadly. And so who we are as people, what we believe as those who call and confess the name of Jesus Christ is on public display all the time by how we live, whether we like it or not. And how we relate to one another and how we relate to the world is preaching something. Now, have you ever asked or wondered what the world sees? Yeah, I have too. And if we just take the Corinthian church, which over 2,000 years doesn't seem like the church has changed too much, unfortunately. When the world sees the Corinthian church, they see something perhaps sad. And I've asked myself, just like Hank asked, when they see Damascus Road, 
Do we see a joyful people? Or do we see a, a miserable people just kind of getting by life? Does the world see a hopeful people or a despairing people in the midst of suffering? Does the world see a humble people, a serving people, or a prideful people? Does the world see a loving people or a hateful people? Do they see a holy people or do they see a hypocritical people? Which is one of the largest accusations lobbed and perhaps rightly so. The Bible does teach that those, and we've seen this in the beginning of Corinthians, those who confess the name of Jesus Christ, those who claim that He is their Lord and Savior, will be dismissed as fools. But the key is to make sure that we're being mocked for believing a gospel that causes us to live differently in the world and not being mocked for the hypocrisy of claiming to be different but living exactly or worse than the world. So these two chapters detail the Corinthians' response to sin, and they don't respond very well. And the world is watching. And what they do by their response, or perhaps their failure to respond well, is they bring shame upon themselves, they bring shame upon the name of Jesus, and they bring shame upon one another, all because of this. They refuse to deal with the sin that's in their church. And refuse to deal with it in a godly way. And their failure, as I said, is on public display for the world to watch. Just as the church's failure oftentimes to deal with our sin today is on public display in a way that's more pervasive and more instant and more global than any other time in history. And the witness that the Corinthians see, which I'm not convinced is much different than our own today, is watching a people who, though claim to be different, are actually more sinful than the world they're in. That hides or ignores their sin as they judge everyone else's. And according to today's text, they're watching and they have a front row seat as they see two brothers from the same family who both claim faith in Jesus Christ, accused, defraud, and sue one another in court. And you just go, what is that witness saying? See, I believe that all sin must be confronted because all sin is a big deal. And the Corinthians are, I guess the source of their problem is that they suddenly have decided that these sins aren't that big a deal. They'll go away. And so for those of us who um, are confronted with sin right now in our lives, and you're tempted to say, what's well, not that big a deal? You're tempted to minimize it. You're tempted like, you know what? I can ignore this. No one needs to know. It's not going to hurt anybody. I'd just like to give you an image for a second, especially as we're in Palm Sunday, the, the, the week of the Passion, if you will, where Jesus is uh, going to be crucified um, at the end of it. Consider that, that sin that you think is not such a big deal. If you can imagine yourself standing for the cross of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior is being crucified, know that um, that sin you think is not a big deal necessitated the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And if there were no other sin but that one that's not a big deal to you, he still would have died on that cross for that sin. 
And then you'll see how big a deal God thinks sin is. So all sin must be confronted. All sin. And at times, as we've seen in chapter 5, that will mean severing the relationship with an unrepentant sinner. That's hard. It's confrontation that really leads to expulsion. But other times, perhaps more common and even maybe even more difficult, it means mediating a relationship between two repentant sinners, where it's confrontation that's leading to hopefully a resolution. That's difficult. And a wrong response um, to sin, either our sin or the sin of others that come against us into our lives, that will destroy our witness. But what if, what if when that happens, whether you're confronted with your own sin or the sin of someone else comes into your life, what if, by the grace of God, that is and could be an opportunity to bear witness to the gospel? You would approach sin very differently and look at sin differently. We're going to read chapter 6, verse 1, and we're going to go all the way through 11, and I'll chunk it out a little bit and go through sections of it. So verse 1, here's the situation Paul is dealing with and what he's talking about in terms of responding to sin in the church. He says, when one of you, speaking to the Corinthians, has a grievance against one or against another, does he dare to have the gall to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world, and if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? Well, how much more than matters pertaining to this life? And so if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? This may not surprise you, but the gospel brings freedom not to sin, but not absolute freedom from sin. And what I mean by that is that sin will find its way into our lives. It will find its way into our relationships. It will find its way into our families. It will find its way into our church. Though we are parts of the same body, though we are members of the same family, though we are servants of one God, workers on the same mission, We, yes, us, will have disputes among one another. And we will hurt each other, sometimes accidentally and sometimes intentionally. Sin will find its way into the church. So the question is not if, it's when. And the real question is, when that happens, how will we respond? How will we respond when we find ourselves caught in sin or find someone else their sin coming into our lives. Well, the Corinthians, excuse me, have responded to sin sinfully, very poorly. Basically, what's happened, the situation, there's a dispute of some kind between two Christians in the same church. What exactly the dispute is, is not certain. It's kind of unclear. There's some inferences the scholars make. But what it seems like through the words that are used is that one person has defrauded or otherwise financially cheated the other. And in order to resolve this conflict, one Christian is taking the other Christian into court and trying, basically, ended up defrauding them in order to fix the fact that they were defrauded. 
And the church sits back and does nothing. Watches. Now, Paul doesn't uh, scold or admonish the Corinthians so much for having a dispute, because unfortunately, as I said, that's almost expected, but more for their failure in handling it as Christians should. And so Paul uses an interesting phrase. He says, do you not know? He uses it ten times in this letter, five times in this chapter. Do you not know? And the implication is that the plaintiff, right, the guy that's suing, the defendant, the guy that's being sued, and the church should all know better. The defendant should know that it's better, uh, you should know better than to defraud somebody and cheat somebody. The plaintiff should know better than to sue somebody. And the church should know better how to handle both. So, in responding to sin, I want to clarify something for everyone. And that is, it is no mystery how God wants us to respond. It's not some secret God is hiding under a rock somewhere that we hope someday to discover. How to respond to our own sin and how to respond to the sin of others is very clear. He has spoken very clearly. And so I've asked myself, like, why don't the Corinthians, why don't people know how to deal with sin? So I came up with some reasons, I think, that are pretty valid, or at least explanatory. One is ignorance. That is, some really don't know. They've never been taught. At the same time, some, I guess, don't want to know. Ignorance sometimes is a choice. Because if I know or learn how to deal with this person's sin or my own sin, then, heck, I might be accountable. So sometimes it's ignorance. Sometimes it's confusion. Uh, I know Mark preached a couple weeks ago on church discipline. Many of you, many of us, come to the table with experiences. Bad experiences. Some good experiences. So many of us have been taught, we know certain things, but some of us don't understand fully. Because we've seen it poorly done. We've seen it poorly or heard it poorly taught. And the question I have just as an ignorant people like, well, you don't want to know. Sometimes when there's confusion, a lot of people don't want to ask for clarity. They'd just rather just accept that it's never done rightly, or the sin's always dealt with this way and it's always bad. But then I think maybe more commonly, and this is maybe where the Corinthians are, there's ignorance and there's sometimes confusion, but I think a lot of times there's just flat rebellion. And by rebellion, I mean. You have been taught. You understand completely. But you just refuse to live it. You simply don't want to obey. When you're told that you, for, for, you should forgive, you go, well, what does that mean? I'm pretty sure I know exactly what it means. And I'm sure you do too. But you don't want to obey. And really, so you got those who don't want to know, those who don't want to ask, and those who don't want to obey. And really... We talk about not knowing how to deal with sin. Sin in your own life. Sin in your family. Sin in your church. And I bring everyone under that accusation, right? Church leaders. 
heads of families, friends in relationship. The reasons are actually all the same, and that are the ways of Jesus are just simply not important enough for you to know. That's really what the truth is. You don't want to know how God would have you respond. Because responding in your own way is much easier. You don't view the ways of Jesus as the ultimate source of authority, of life, of joy, and of satisfaction. It's not a matter It's not able to be known. You don't want to know. Or you don't want to obey. Well, here's the strange thing. I don't know if many of you have seen the movie uh, Memento. There's an interesting quote in that film. And it talks about the idea of history. And it says, you can forget your past, but your past can't forget you or won't forget you. Sin is similar. Even if you don't know, you're going to have to respond to sin. You can ignore sin, but sin will not ignore you. And so, if you don't respond rightly, if you don't know, if you don't ask, if you don't seek, if you don't really desire to know how God will want you to respond, that doesn't mean you won't respond. It means you'll respond probably wrongly. And most likely, you'll respond according to the ways of the world around you. Whether that's the ways that are exemplified for you in culture, whether those are the ways that you are taught, or the ways that you just kind of go with your gut and try to figure it out. And typically, that'll be the ways of the world. In this case, instead of trusting the church to mediate what is a broken relationship and find a a resolution between the two, one Christian takes another to court. So we do in our society, right? We sue to get justice. <laughs> now the Roman courts, strangely, or maybe not strangely, were pretty corrupt, but they weren't probably any more corrupt than our courts today. And they were full of, and then you can do any kind of search you want on Google, so many frivolous lawsuits it was overwhelming. We have the same kind of culture today. Roman law, back then, maybe even more so than it does today, favored the rich, favored the privilege, favored those who had status, and it did not favor or support just the equality of individuals. Most cases, therefore, had very little to do with evidence and finding truth and everything to do with character assassination and writing checks. That's what the court system was about. So judges and lawyers and defendants and plaintiffs, even juries, were driven by self-gain and self-protection. But I don't really think an unjust verdict is what Paul's main concern is. In fact, I'm not even convinced they would get an unjust verdict because we saw Paul go into a courtroom uh, in the book of Acts and he actually got a pretty good verdict. So I don't think Paul's actually worried about a corrupt verdict necessarily. In fact, it's really important to see that Paul says there should be a judgment. It's not that Paul's saying, well, just forget about it. Just let it go. He says there should be a judgment. His concern is that the church should be the one, in terms of this relationship in this church, who is mediating that decision, helping to come to that conclusion. And I don't think in our culture today, we really look at the church that way. We always try to resolve differences ourselves, and usually ends up poorly. And so, to tell you, like, are you saying that 
the church, when we have disputes between brothers and sisters, even financial type of ones, we should come to the elders or our brothers and sisters in Christ, the church, and we should let you guys mediate that? Yes, I am. And the reason why is because if you go out there, you're going before a pagan court with a totally different world value system. It is not because we have all the authority in the world, it's because we have a different way or concern and goal in accomplishing or finding resolution. And according to Paul, he says that when Jesus returns, which is a very Jewish thought, that the saints will participate with him in his rule in eternity and even judge the world and angels in some way. Men, specifically the church, are more than capable of settling little earthly matters like this. Now this passage is often used to teach that Christians should never ever go to court with other Christians. I don't believe that. I don't believe that it is comprehensively wrong for a believer to take legal action against another. Though we do have to remember that the law of justice in our world does not always uphold the law of Christ which is very different. And at times, we must actually go beyond justice to mercy, as Christ did for us. But regardless, I don't think a Christian court case is the uh, point. It's the context, but it's not the point of this passage. It's not about what are your legal rights and what, how far to the edge can I go and what can I do to make sure I get justice. That's not what it's about. Here's what it's about, and this is why I think it applies to most of us, because we're easily dismissive of this passage, saying, well, I never had lawsuits. I wouldn't sue anybody. I've never been sued. I believe that it's really a, comes down to being about two Christian brothers in the same church family who are trying to resolve a dispute in a very bad way. And instead of dealing with it like family members who love Jesus and love one another and assume the best they have chosen to expose their problems to the world. And they have decided to air their dirty laundry, for lack of a better term, in a public forum. And as they seek what they think is their rights, right? we're all about rights in America. I want to protect my rights. I want to get what is due me. What they do is they go before a pagan judge, give testimony about one another, with an attempt and an effort to make the other look worse than themselves. I don't see how that could ever end up positive. Now, it's unlikely that many of us will end up in a Roman courtroom like this. But I fear that many of us have taken some of the disputes we've had with brothers and sisters in Christ and have thrust them out into the court of public opinion all the time. We may not go before a magistrate in an official way, but unofficially, we do it every day. Instead of seeking to uphold God's name, we make cases to uphold our own. In situations, and in individuals, are accused and tried and judged on things like Twitter and Facebook 
and blogs every day. We do. And sometimes we present our evidence in a very passive-aggressive way usually, sometimes cryptically, before a courtroom of empathetic unbelievers. Just waiting with great anticipation, salivating for the moment that, oh yeah, that's why I don't go to church. That's why Christianity is ridiculous. Look how you guys treat each other. They may not say it, though they often do. So we vent out in front of everyone, and we revile and we accuse one another, sometimes through technology and sometimes face-to-face with those who are not part of the family. All in an effort to win. Maybe not get the verdict, but still get a verdict. Still end up on top. And as a result, here's what happens. The public has a fantastic opportunity to voice their judgment on you and on your brother and on your church and on your Lord. We respond wrongly. And we never consider, which is really the heart of this whole passage, we never stop to consider what kind of witness this is going to give to the name of Christ. If I write this, if I say this, is his name going to be more glorified or less? We're more concerned with just getting what we feel we deserve. So this is without doubt cowardly, and although Paul earlier said, I don't write these things to shame you, he changes his tune here. And he says in verse 5, I say this to shame you. You should be ashamed of yourself. You should be embarrassed. And then to further expose their shame, he uses sarcasm. Praise God for sarcasm, right? I am horrible with it. I usually sin with it, but Paul uses it very righteously here, so I'm not going to allow sarcasm to be taken away from the repertoire of things that we can use to admonish. But Paul says here to a church that for this whole time has been claiming how wise they are. He says, can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? That's quirky. And he says, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you, Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? If you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. See, Paul says that the result of this lawsuit, regardless of the judgment, is going to be irrelevant because it's already a defeat for the individuals. It's a defeat for their families and for the church and for the mission. Everyone is going to lose even when someone wins. One man cheated his brother, and now another brother is going to cheat him. If you learn nothing else, know that two wrongs never, ever make a right. 
The church community is supposed to be involved in mediating these relationships, not so that everyone wins, but so that they can be reminded that Jesus already won to deal with these kind of issues. The world uh, can give a judgment. And I think in this courtroom, they can actually even give a just judgment. The world can actually restore whatever money was actually taken, and sometimes more than that. The world can uh, give an appropriate punishment. I'm not suggesting the world gets it wrong every time. But in its verdict, there are certain things the world will never be able to do, if you think about it. The world won't ever care to restore the relationships between these two guys. That's not their goal. They're just purely material. Who's right, who's wrong? The world in its verdict cannot address the real heart issues that brought this lawsuit there in the first place. And maybe more than anything, the world will not attempt to use this sin to bear witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of God to redeem and heal broken relationships. That won't be their goal. They could care less what Jesus thinks about it. So in verse 7 there, Paul addresses the plaintiff directly and the church kind of indirectly. And we'll not forget that we, we often deceive ourselves to believe that you know, avoiding or ignoring sin will make it go away and that it just won't happen. And the result of all this, or where this has come from, I should say, is that the church failed to deal with the sin in the beginning. That's where most of the problems happen. The church should have stepped in. The church should have confronted. The church should have opened their mouths and not allowed this to continue. But they remained silent like Adam in the garden. But even if the church didn't step in, that doesn't excuse the individual who has a responsibility to respond with the mind of Christ. And so he says something to the plaintiff that is so difficult to read. And it may not be difficult for you to read because you haven't been defrauded or wronged in recent months, but for those of you who have, for those of you in your life experience, man, people have hurt you, cheated you, wronged you. These are hard verses. He asks the plaintiff, the one who had been cheated, why not suffer wrong? Why not, instead of doing more sin, why not just be defrauded? If he steals your shirt, why not give him the other one? And the answer is easy, right? Because they've taken from me. They've robbed me. They have shamed my dignity. They owe me. They hurt me. They should be punished. They should feel pain like I do. You don't understand. And I say, you're right, I don't. But Jesus does. Jesus does, in a way that I never could. 
in a way that maybe you can't fathom. I mean, do you realize the, I want my justice. I want them to pay is the very opposite of how Jesus responded to you and your sin. Do we not know that we had taken from God? That we robbed God of His glory? That we dishonored Him? That we hurt Him? That we defrauded Him? That we owe Him everything? That we deserve punishment? And yet, what did He do? He willingly suffered in my place, for my sins. This is the Passion Week. I usually watch um, that movie, The Passion. I get, well, I should say, I watch about two-thirds of it, and then I can't. I don't think I've ever gotten through it, actually. And the part that always gets me is, prior to the crucifixion, when Jesus is being beaten in the portico, And he does so silently. The eternal Son of God, who without a thought could wipe out that entire existence of every Roman around him, is beaten and suffers, is mocked and hit and spit upon by men whom he created. The very spit of their mouths he created. And I feel like I need my due. I need my justice. We owe him everything. He allowed himself to be defrauded and he humbled himself to the glory of God in a way that we can't even possibly imagine. But he did so that we might have the power to do the same. 1 Peter chapter 2 Verse 18 says it this way. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, that's key, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure, but when you do good and suffer for it, You endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Verse 21, For to this you have been called. This is your purpose. This is your goal. This is not optional. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. What are those steps? Well, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Wow. Do you not know that this is the love of Christ? Do you not know that this is how we are to respond to the sin of ourselves and the sin of our brothers and sisters who sin against us, and even our enemies. Do you not know that this is what it means to be a Christian? 
C.S. Lewis said it this way, To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Wow. Therefore, if it means that Jesus' name, the name of my Savior, the reputation of my Lord, the proclamation of the only truth that really is truth, if it means that Jesus' name is made more famous and that I can witness to the life-giving truth of the gospel, then why not suffer wrong? I don't need to defend myself. I don't need to pursue justice. I don't need to make sure everyone feels better about me or understands that I'm not the bad guy. I don't need to defraud someone else to ensure I have security even if they've defrauded me. I have Jesus, so I have everything. So why not forgive? Why not love? Why not trust God? And I am not suggesting for a second that this is easy or painless. The crucifixion was difficult and painful. But I am declaring that it is the most glorifying thing we can do. And it is the path to life and contentment and joy, though it does not seem like it in the eyes of the world. And Paul ends this text that we're studying here with a list of behaviors similar to uh, the one in chapter 5, I think to kind of show us why it's so difficult for us to do this. It gives a pretty vivid picture of the world that surrounds the church at the time, which quite frankly isn't any different than our world. And it's an indictment of the two men who are suing, or in this lawsuit, it's two men who are part of the church, but they're living like they are part of the world. He says, again, or do you not know? He's appealing to them to repent. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. We don't read verses like that very slowly. See, the world deceives us, and this is why it's so difficult. It deceives us into believing that the earthly kingdom is all there is. That this is all there is to inherit. So you better get yours. And if you start to believe that, then guess what? You will do everything you can, even sin, to protect your kingdom, to get what you deserve, whether that be respect or money or power. Whatever you feel threatened is going to be taken from you. And here's the truth. You will, if you do that, get your respect. And you will get your treasure. And you will get your way. And you will get everything that the world has to offer, but you will lose the one thing that will last when the world is gone, and that is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. The truth is that anyone who lives like the world, and I'm not suggesting we don't sin, I'm not suggesting for a second that we never do wrong, but there is a huge difference between a believer who is repentant and a believer who is not. 
And one who is not, I'm not convinced, is a believer. Those who pursue sin, practice sin, live in sin, desire sin, those who live like the world, regardless of what they say, regardless of what they confess about their love for Jesus, they will die with the world. And they're not going to simply die because they're bad. Guess what? God only saves bad people. They're going to die because they have refused to follow the true king and believe who Jesus says he was. Jesus said it first in John 8. He said to them, you are from below and I am from above. You are of this world and I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. I'm not sure how more clear He can be. It's not about behaving well. It's about believing well. Behavior will come after belief. But by God's grace, Paul doesn't end by warning us to change our behavior. Just act better. Stop suing each other. What he does is he appeals to them and their transformed hearts. And he ends by basically saying, this is not who you are. Guys, this is not who you are in Christ. That man that you keep trying to dig up is dead. The old man that is your sinful flesh, leave him in the tomb. He says, and such were some of you. This list of sinners. The list of those who will not inherit. He says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. God saves broken people and makes them whole. He saves ugly people and makes them beautiful. He saves dirty people and He makes them clean. When Jesus saves you, He changes you from the inside out. And He empowers you to live differently. To see things differently. To be more concerned with upholding His name than anybody else's. You are no longer what you were. Whether that was a pervert, or a drunk, or a cheat, or a reviler, whatever. That is not who you are anymore. Through faith, Paul says, we who are unlovable have been loved. We have been washed by the blood of Jesus. We have been declared more than innocent by the authority of our King. And we have been set apart for the mission of Jesus so that you can live and bear witness to the power of Jesus by loving the unlovable until Jesus returns. That's why we're here. How we shall live is very clear in Scripture. It's very difficult to do it though. But by the power of God's Spirit we can. Romans 12 gives us a very clear answer to the question, well how then shall we live? How then shall we deal with people who are mean to us? How then shall we deal with people who hurt us? Do we just like endure and shut down and go, I'm just going to, okay, I won't say anything. 
No, that's not enough either. Romans 12, 14 says it this way. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Are you serious? I got to go beyond forgiveness? It says rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty or prideful, but associate with the lowly and never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, because the world is watching. And dare I say, your family is watching. Your husband and wife watching. Church is watching. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, because let's be honest, you can't control what the other person does, and that's not the point. Live peaceably with all. And beloved, never, maybe sometimes, never, just occasionally, never avenge yourselves. But that doesn't mean vengeance isn't coming. Leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So what should the world see in the church? To see people who are very honest with their sin and they confront sin when it comes into their lives. And you see a people who are joyful and a people who are hopeful and a people who are humble and a people who are gentle and a people who are loving because of people who are redeemed. That's what they should see. And guess what communion that we take Every time we gather is a reminder that God overcame evil with good. And the evil He overcame was yours. Not that evil out there. No, the evil in here. So when you come to the table, what you are confessing is that what I've done is inexcusable. But God has forgiven the inexcusable in me. So I will forgive the inexcusable in others. Not because it's easy, but because it's glorifying. Some of us have broken relationships right now. Some of us are struggling with forgiving. Some of us um, are holding little grudges. Some of us, quite frankly, are trying our friends and those who have hurt us on the court or in the court of public opinion all the time. That needs to be confessed. And we would love to pray with you and direct your eyes towards the cross where we find forgiveness, we find strength, and we find hope. As we worship, we'll have a couple people up here ready to pray with you to confess those sins and to remind you of the forgiveness that Jesus offers, not to beat you down, but to encourage you. Amen?